you can rebuild a motor, reboot your computer, even kickstart the old scooter. But what do you do when your own mojo is mutilated? That's where we step in. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. If you're a first time listener, what do we do here? We just find interesting folks that we can talk to, extract their tips, their tools, their opinions, their thoughts, their way of thinking that we can adopt, put into our own world to help get our mojo working. And after all, that's what the show is all about. Straight up, getting it working in and out of work. If you're a long-time listener, welcome back, folks. We love having you hit the download button, and we sure appreciate it. Thanks for all the lovely messages that have been getting through to us here in the Mojo studio. And speaking of studio, welcome, Robbo. Thank you, mate. How are you? Oh, look, I am... Actually, i, I got to say, today's show is a... I've all, I know I say it a lot, but today's show is a cracker. This lady is super special. Today's show is going to be huge. And the other thing that I might say gets my mojo going lately is watching the, um, the amount of people who are discovering our show at the moment. Our, um, our downloads page is going... Nuts. Mm. Good. Good. <laughs> and it's interesting because today's show is a lot about Mojo because we're talking to a lady who is the founder of Ziva. And the very first line when you read about Ziva, who are out of New York in America, and hello to all our friends. We've had an influx of listeners coming out of the States mm. of recent times. So hello yeah. to our friends in the USA. Uh, nice to have you on board. But Ziva is a school for high performance, a bit like the Mojo Radio yeah, well, Show. Shit, doesn't really compare, <laughs> does it? Surely. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Oh, thank God. So here's the backstory. I was listening to another podcast called Ben Greenfield, which I dip in and out of on a regular basis. And I heard Emily Fletcher, who was the founder of Ziva Meditation Talking. Now, What I found most intriguing about Emily's view on meditation, mindfulness, and kind of, in a way, self-awareness was that it was the first time I actually had somebody explain to me the neuroscience behind it, like what actually goes on inside our brain, our spirits when we do this. And as high-performance people or leaders or people who just want their mojo working in and out of work, it was the first time that I'd heard somebody actually talk about the science, the quantifiable science that's going on inside us when we go through these practices. And just as a little setup, Robo, uh, Emily has also worked with Oscar winners, Grammy winners, Emmy and Tony Award winners, some of the highest profiled CEOs, NBA players, as well as full-time mums, for example, or business leaders like you and me running our own business. And the other flip side that I find very interesting is the sorts of companies that are now engaging with Emily and Ziva Meditation, including Google, people with Googliness, Barcom, Barclays, a pretty impressive lineup of people who are seeking out Emily, and you're about to find out why, folks. So, Emily Fletcher, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Hey, thanks for having me. I always want to improve my mojo. <laughs> you want the wrong show? <laughs> I've got a no. I've got a special introduction for you. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show to the Tallahassee Lassie. How cool is that? Hey, Hello. there you go. Hello. Hey, that's me. Mm. It is you. Now, you were the Tallahassee Lassie, and then. 
Where I want to start is on Broadway because I think this sets up where we want to go with the show. You had dreamt from an early age of being on Broadway. You achieved that dream. You got to Broadway. You did the opening. You went through the whole thing and then went, actually, I feel miserable. Can you take me back to that time and that place where suddenly that dream wasn't what you wanted? Yeah, sure. So there, there's actually two moments. There was two versions of that. The first one happened three weeks after I got my Broadway debut. It was the saddest I had ever been. And it was very confusing to me because I, I mean, that is the only thing I wanted and it's the only thing I worked towards since I was eight years old. And three weeks after I got the debut, I was, I remember like crying. I was like a hilarious, like dramatic moment. I was like crying in my kitchen and I threw my phone across the apartment because I was 22 years old, like like on Broadway, like everyone's dream. Right. Mm-hmm. And here I am crying in my kitchen. And what I realized at a relatively young age is that I was more interested in the happiness of pursuit than I was the pursuit of happiness. And meaning that I was happiest when I was working towards this goal. I was happiest when I was still in this, like, I'll be happy when syndrome. And I really thought that once I get on Broadway, like once I I achieve this thing, and we all have that thing, you know, the fill in the blank, that I'll be happy when this happens. And I was so deep in that, that when I got the goal, it felt like the dream had been taken away from me. And I didn't have the wherewithal at 22 years old to set a new dream. And so I, I actually was sort of stagnating a bit and in where I had been leading with creation for so long. So that was a very, um, it was, it was eye-opening, even though I didn't know how to solve it. So I just thought, well, it must, I'll be happy once I get that next Broadway show or the next Broadway show or the next boyfriend or the next zero in my bank account or the next agent. And I did that for a decade. And then finally, I ended up in a chorus line, which was my last Broadway show where I was understudying three of the lead roles. and. you know, basically that's a really hard job and it's pretty stressful and some people are good at it. I'm not. And I was in my dressing room and I started, um, like realizing that I was going gray at 26 years old. I was having insomnia. I couldn't sleep through the night for 18 months. I was getting sick. I was getting injured. And again, it's confusing to me. Like, why am I living my dream? And I'm miserable because I, I, again, I still thought even after a decade of chasing it, I thought, well, this should be like sunshine and roses and martinis with Liza at Sardi's. And instead it was girls eating tuna fish out of a can and complaining about their bunions (laughs) and like me sitting up curled up in fetal position, rocking back and forth, listening to Eckhart Tolle on repeat, being like, why am I not happy? And, and, and again, it was this, it was this incarnation of the I'll be happy when syndrome. And so basically, thankfully, this woman was sitting next to me in the dressing room and she had a harder job than I did, but she was crushing it. And I was like, lady, and yes, she was Australian. You, you Aussies are tricky because you know, I just thought that she was happy all the time because she was Australian. And then I was like, no, this is extra. And I was like, what is your secret lady? And she said, I meditate. And I was like, come on. Cause this was a decade ago. No one was really talking about it then like they are now. And so she said, you know, I meditate my teachers in town come along. And I went to this talk. I liked what I heard. I signed up for this course. First day, first course, I'm meditating. That night I slept through the night for the first time in 18 months. And I have every night since, and that was 10 years ago. And then I stopped going gray. I stopped getting sick. I stopped getting injured. And I was like, I don't understand why everyone doesn't do this. So I left Broadway, I went to India and I started what became a three-year training process to teach this. And it's been the best thing I've ever done. Something occurred to me in 
reading through in my your... in my monologue. <laughs> During no, my very just, well rehearsed monologue, I, it's something that I that I haven't heard people speak about before. So I'll be interested in your perspective on it. You, someone has a compelling dream. You're in Tallahassee, and you have this compelling dream to be on Broadway. And to talk about the fact you're on Broadway, you're in a chorus line. I mean, that's that's the pinnacle. That that's the dream, and you keep pushing for that dream, and then. The ability to be able to see a different future, but then have the courage to leave that compelling dream behind to know, you know what, there's actually something different. And the, what I'm interested in, Emily, is I think a lot of people are in something. They dream of something different, but they don't have the courage to actually let go of what they thought it was to actually pursue something different. Talk me through that. Like how hard was that? And if there was one key to doing it, what what's the most compelling thing somebody could take away to help them make that decision? Mm. Well, to be honest, I don't think I would have been able to do it if I didn't have meditation. There's no way I would have even had the clarity to listen to my own intuition and to be able to hear that nature was trying to use me in this different way. Um, But one of the beautiful things about meditation is that it really turns down the volume on your critical mind and it turns up the volume on your intuitive mind and it allows you to be more brave. Um, But to be very honest, I didn't, I never made the decision where like, I'm going to quit acting and I'm going to start teaching meditation. Like I always, I'm very arrogant and I'm very, um, I sort of overestimate how much I think I can accomplish in any given day, year or life. And so I was like, oh yeah, fine. Like I'll just, just, I'll still act and I'll, and I'll teach meditation. Like if acting is slow, I'll teach meditation, not like more. And, and I thought I could do both. And, and it wasn't until like there was this one week where I had graduated from teacher training and I had this one week and I was in final callbacks to play Velma in Chicago on Broadway. I was launching the world's first online meditation training called Ziva Mind and I knew nothing about technology. And I was, I was like literally nothing. And, um, I was running an acting studio. Like I had opened up the East coast division of the number one acting school in LA. And I was training six people to be teachers there. And that was all happening in the same week. And I wasn't sleeping and everything was sucking. And I was like, no one wins here. Like, like literally like I'm not doing anything well. And so that was the first week where I I thought, you know what, like something has to give. And my agents kept calling me and saying like, Emily, we need more headshots and resumes. And it would take me three months to deliver them. And so I was, I had already decided, like my body had already decided that, and I knew where nature wanted to use me, but I just, it was hard for me to let go of that identity and that piece of who I was, because it's what I wanted since I was eight. And so that was very hard, but, but to be honest, it, it had already happened. My body and my life had already made the decision before my brain caught up. And so by the time my brain was like, oh yeah, ding dong, you're not even acting anymore. (laughs) Like I had already had this flourishing business and I already had thousands of students. And so it wasn't like I had to quit as much as I was moving towards the positive. Whereas I think when a lot of people leave acting, they leave out of necessity. And so the breakup is harder, you know, because they're walking away from something where I was really walking towards something else. And I think that if I had to say one key to changing jobs, it's move towards the positive, not away from the negative. Because if you think you're going to move away from a negative, those same lessons are just going to show up, but louder in the next job or the next city, or the next relationship. Something you said then I think is really profound, which I've never really thought about before, Emily, where you said my body 
had made the decision, and I certainly know here in Australia, and I think pretty much in the US or Europe or our friends in South Africa, I mean, it's pretty much anywhere in the world, we are facing a lot of health crises, particularly in the workplace. And there are probably a lot of people whose bodies are screaming out saying enough, but because we feel like crap, we're overweight, we're tired, we drag ourselves out of bed in the morning, we've got foggy brain, we think that's normal because we're working hard and that's what we were taught to do. It's interesting, people to take an audit of their own health to say what is my body telling me is enough enough before it gets to the point where you get a diagnosis where you don't have a choice, isn't it? Yes. And and this, I mean, obviously I'm a big evangelical person about meditation, but it's, that's something that's really changed for me as well, is that meditation has allowed me to hear my body when it whispers so that it doesn't have to scream at me because the body will scream. Like if you don't listen to the whispers, it starts yelling and then it starts screaming. And then if you don't listen, then it starts wrecking the house. And, and I think that a lot of people have really trained themselves to just power through. And if I'm tired, I'll just drink some caffeine. And if I can't sleep, I'll just have some wine. And we're just, we're using these chemical substances to lift us up or take us down and and it and with the mistaken assumption that it's not costing us anything and that's just a mistake i mean like everything costs your body something good bad or otherwise and and I'm, i mean this isn't me telling anybody what to do i mean i think if you want to do drugs do them have fun but know what it's costing you you know like know what the what the real price tag is of that and i would include sugar and caffeine and screens and all of that in the in the drug category i listen to my body regularly um especially <laughs> especially especially when it's um it's asking for tim tams i tim i tend tams. to take a, a pretty good notice of that yes tim tams. i don't even know what a tim tam is well it it's probably the delicious. equivalent of your oreo yeah Think, think chocolate, Oreos. chocolate, chocolate biscuit with chocolate icing in the middle, coated in chocolate. What? Do you know what's funny, amazing. Emily? When you said hearing my body when it whispers before it starts screaming, my mind immediately went to Robbo in the studio where he could hear these whispers of Tim Tams, Tim Tams, <laughs> and said if he doesn't, if he doesn't get one, he just starts screaming, That's "Get right. me a damn Tim Tam." Yeah. Okay, so actually, I have a lot to say about this. Like, I know you're joking, but I'm, I actually have a lot to say. So not, I know that won't surprise anyone. Um, <laughs> hey, now stop joking. Let's <laughs> would probably surprise people that I said something that you had a great response for. So <laughs> that would be unlike me on the big note. <laughs> so, okay. So we have this one rule at Ziva. Like, I'm, I'm very allergic to doctrine and dogma, but we do have one rule here at Ziva. And that is that you got to follow charm. And what that means is you got to listen to that still small voice inside, like that little thing that says turn left, even when your GPS is saying turn right. Um, But there's a big but here. There's a big caveat to this. And that is that if you are still living your life under the I'll be happy when syndrome, or if you're still pretty ruled by your addictions, then this rule does not apply to you. Because if you ask a heroin addict what they want, what feels charming to you, heroin addict? They're like, I would like some more heroin, please. And so it takes a decent amount of work to move beyond those addictions. And the way that meditation helps with that is it's actually giving you access to your bliss and fulfillment in the only place that they reside, which is inside of you, which frees you up to move away from those addictions. And and it turns, it's basically turning down the volume on the addictive longing and turning up the volume on the intuitive desire so that you can start to listen to those little whispers, which I like to call them nature's GPS. You know, it's like your little instruction manual where you need to go to deliver your fulfillment versus 
going through life being under the illusion that you need to get that desire, you need to get that Tim Tam, you need to get that Broadway show in order to be fulfilled. I'm just going to camp here for a second, if I may, Emily, because I find this a bit fascinating. So one one of the things that it seems society is lacking right now is discipline. So as we were talking about starting the show and we talked about, you know, the meditation and the mind stuff that we've been on a bit of a journey for the last couple of years on with, you know, different different people in different parts of the world. We've also been following grit, resilience, getting it done. And I like the idea of listening to the voice. And I remember doing a, a, a job in Atlanta in the, in the US and a lady talked about intuition. And at the end of her little speech, I walked up and said, well, how do I know? Like, how do I know this works? She said, well, you don't, you just got to trust it. And that was years ago, and I've always trusted my intuition. Then the flip side for what you're saying is sometimes that voice is telling me not to get out of bed or don't go work out today, do twice as much tomorrow, or I'm at a conference, they're serving crap food, oh, what the hell, I don't have any choice, I'm at a conference, so I'll, I'll eat that crap they're putting out. Where's that point where you know that the charm is the right voice? and not a voice that is keeping me from all the good that I deserve? Yes. So this is a great question. And I think that it, it really truly involves a level of mastery um, to be able to discern it. And I think it's a lifelong practice, but there's two things that can really help with this. And one is making sure that you do have a daily meditation practice. And by that, I mean some means by which you are accessing that source, like whatever that is for you, right? Where you're like tapping into the source of fulfillment that you are. And in the style of meditation that I teach at Ziva, what's happening is that you're flooding your brain and body with dopamine and serotonin, which are literally bliss chemicals. And so when you're in that meditation, it feels nice. But then when you come out of it, you've proven to yourself viscerally and physically that you have access to the thing that you want inside. Because we don't actually want the Tim Tam. We want the dopamine hit that we get on the other side of the delicious taste of the Tim Tam. And when you start flooding your brain and body with those bliss chemicals, which is what we're actually addicted to, a sex addiction is actually a dopamine addiction. A shopping addiction is actually a dopamine addiction. And so when you start becoming self-sufficient in those chemicals, you stop being under the illusion that that crap food at the conference is going to actually make you feel better and you're going to be able to play that story out in your head. Well, if I eat this, I'm actually going to be tired and then I'm going to be gassy and then I'm going to be bloated and I'm not willing to pay that price right now, which is different than like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to call that guy. And so part two of this is, and this is a, it's a rule, it's a general rule and it definitely can be broken, but I think it's a nice place to start of telling the difference between an addiction and intuition. Uh, and basically it's that intuition or charm is going to move you towards the positive. It's going to move you towards the creative versus fear is going to move you away. It's going to move you away from something, meaning like write that book, you know, you're too fat, you're too old, you're too dumb, no one cares. Like that's usually the thing that comes up right behind it. That's gold. Tallahassee gold. Tallahassee gold. Yee, 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 yee. Uh, now we've, let's, let's, let's take that. I I love that the whole idea of I'm not willing to pay the price. I think if people had that default going through their mind when they're thinking about whether it's a positive charm or a negative charm, I, I really like that thought. And I just want to start to take the off ramp from this little conversation related, but Ziva itself, 
what's what's the mission behind Ziva, this journey you're on? And how does Ziva is is Ziva the way you do it, the processes you have, the people you work with? Is that different to a typical meditation that our listeners would be familiar with? Like where is the point of difference that can be so powerful for us? Okay. Great question. So first question, what's the mission of Ziva? Um, it is to make meditation attractive, accessible, and easy to adopt for high performers. Uh, and, I, and I know there's some alliteration there, but that's not to be cute. Like those words are very specific and on purpose. I, we want to make meditation accessible, attractive, and easy to adopt, right? So what I'm saying there is that I want to make people want to do it. You got to make it attractive. You got to make it sexy. You got to let people understand the neuroscience behind what it's actually doing. Because if you understand what's actually happening to your brain when you meditate, and then you don't do it, you're just a ding dong. Like there's just no, like there's no uh, reason to not do this thing except for people like us, people with busy minds and busy lives are being taught and preached to um, styles of meditation that aren't made for us. And I think that this leads me to part two of your question, which is like, what makes Ziva different? Okay. So the word meditation is very much like the word food, right? Like if you eat a Tim Tam, you're going to feel and perform differently than if you drink a green chia seed smoothie, right? They're going to do different things to your brain and body. Well, similarly, meditation, practicing mindfulness, like listening to a 10-minute mindfulness app is going to do something different to your brain and body than practicing 20 minutes of Ziva meditation on your own after having expert training and becoming self-sufficient in the practice. And so I think what a lot of people like us are doing, which I would call us householders, right? Like people with busy minds and busy lives, people like us are trying to practice monastic styles of meditation. And then we find it hard because we're trying to focus, we're trying to clear our minds, and then we can't do it because that's impossible, right? Because the mind thinks involuntarily, just like the heart beats involuntarily, and then we feel like we're failing and then we quit. Right. And so my, my mission at Ziva is to rid the world of ex-meditators because again, like I said, like this thing is too good to quit doing it. <laughs> um, but I think that a lot of people quit because they're judging themselves based on misinformation and they're trying to do styles of meditation that weren't made for them. So at Ziva, we've taken this very powerful 6,000 year old tool, this very beautiful 6,000 year old technique um, called Nishkam Karma meditation, which is really just a fancy Sanskrit way of saying union attained by action hardly taken, which I like to call the busy man's meditation because you don't have to like chant for an hour and a half or do an hour and a half of yoga or stop having sex or drinking Jack Daniels. Like all you need to do it is a chair. And so I've taken this beautiful 6,000 year old practice that was made for people like us, but then I've made it really attractive and easy to adopt for high performers. So the actual Ziva technique is this beautiful trifecta of mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting. Um, and we can talk later about the difference between mindfulness and, and, and meditation. Yes, it's actually on my agenda. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> We're on the same page. We have an agenda? Um, yeah, oh, yeah, I got an agenda. <laughs> it's a one-line one agenda. It's just got <laughs> mindfulness versus meditation. That's the whole agenda. Um, oh, good. Now, when I've heard you speak, there's something that I, I, I really wanted to ask you before I get to my agenda. Um, 
The comment you made in an interview that I heard, I think with Ben Greenfield on his show, you said that Ziva releases a lifetime of accumulated stress, whereas a lot of meditations, and this is how I've always seen it, is that, okay, I'm stressed or I'm getting ready for the day or I need to get my mind set or clear my mind, okay, let's meditate. Whereas what I've heard you talk about is this, there's a whole lifetime of accumulated stress, as in you can't just do one exercise session and drop 20 kilos. You've got a whole lifetime of accumulation. It's going to take time. Why, why does Ziva work so well in relieving that kind of lifetime as we go, as opposed to most meditations, which are do it now to help me now? Mm-hmm. Really good question. So most time, when I say the word meditation, what most people think of, it would be a guided visualization or breath work or a YouTube video with someone guiding them through like picturing their chakras or imagining a waterfall. And so, and which is all fine. Okay. Like I'm not putting down any other styles of meditation. I think they all have their time and their place, but I do think that as it's becoming more mainstream and it's becoming more popular, we have a responsibility to be specific with our vernacular. And I think that a lot of people quit meditating because they're, they don't know the difference between mindfulness and meditation. They're like, well, should I clear my mind or should I let go? Should I be resting or should I be focusing? And so I think just a little bit of specificity with language could actually help millions, if not hundreds of millions of people have a, a more efficient and effective practice. So um, when I say the word meditation, what most people think of would be some version of what I would call mindfulness. And so this, this gets to our one agenda item, which is the difference between meditation and mindfulness. <laughs> um, <laughs> so mindfulness is a directed focus style of meditation, meaning that, all right, everyone count your breaths or imagine your breath or imagine sending your breath from the base of your spine to the middle of your forehead, all fine, all good, but that's keeping you in your left brain. It's keeping you in your waking state. It is an active directed focus style of meditation versus what I teach at Ziva. The main course of what I teach at Ziva, this Nishkam Karma meditation is actually inducing a verifiable fourth state of consciousness, something that is different than waking, sleeping, or dreaming. And in this state of consciousness, two things are happening. One, you're giving your body rest that is five times deeper than sleep. And it is that deep rest that helps the body relieve that lifetime of accumulated stresses. Just like when you go to sleep at night, your body's able to heal and repair, right? And if you don't sleep, things start to build up. But if you, if you sleep, then you start to take away those old, um, you know, you build up cancer cells and, um, any, like any number of like, uh, maintenance functions that your body needs to run, um, that happens when we sleep. So, Two things. One, the body's getting rest. It's five times deeper than sleep, which I'll talk more about that in a moment. But two, you're in that fourth state of consciousness, different than waking, sleeping, or dreaming. The right and left hemispheres of the brain start functioning in unison. And and that's one of the things that allows you to hear that intuitive voice a little bit more because that's coming from your right brain. But most of us can't hear that because the left brain, the critical mind is screaming at us all the time. 
Um, so right brain, left brain sort of a, a, we can talk about that later, but to answer your question specifically, why does Ziva help to reduce or get rid of the lifetime of accumulated stresses? It really, the trick is in this deep rest that you're getting. And how do we know that we're getting that deep rest? Well, it's your metabolic rate decreases, your heart rate slows and your body temperature cools. And that happens within 30 to 45 seconds of practicing. And the style of meditation that I teach, because I make people self-sufficient, they actually then can do it on their own. And they do it twice a day. And that is the key as well, because once a day meditation is very much a maintenance program. Um, and twice a day is the thing that's like, you're dealing with all the new stresses you're picking up and you're also getting rid of the, of the, the backlog. Is there a time frame? I saw a, you've got some fantastic clips on YouTube that our listeners can go and resource. They're terrific. This is great. Dif- different sorts, different styles, different questions. One that I watched was essentially you going through your morning routine. So you wake up and you pull coconut oil, you have hot water, two-thirds hot, one-third room temperature and so on. You have this great routine that you go through. Then I saw at the end of the clip you essentially sat on the couch with a pillow on your, on your lap and you start to meditate. Is, and I think that the clip said you'd meditated for 20 minutes. Is there a time frame for optimal success in getting to this fourth state. Is it a time thing? Is it a practice thing where you can reduce the amount of time you're required to do it? Like, how does that work, Emily? Um, So there are recommended times to do it, but, you know, we tend to work with really high performers at Ziva and and that includes, I'm a stay-at-home mom and I have four kids. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm starting my own company. I'm hosting the Oscars this weekend. You know, so like people whose schedules are changing all the time. Hey, I run the internet. <laughs> um, and so like, yes, there are like optimal times to meditate, but the big thing is that you just get it done. You know, that you, that you really just find the time to do. And I recommend twice a day. Now the optimal times would be in the morning before breakfast, coffee, or computer. So like before you you've started stimulating your nervous system before you've started sharing pictures on Instagram. Um, you know, you want to basically tap into the source and fill yourself up from the source so that you can use your to-do list as a means by which to deliver that fulfillment instead of being that in that like old idea of let me use my to-do list as a way to fill myself up. So first thing in the morning, like ideally before you interact with humans, the exception to that would be new moms. You know, it's like, okay, deal with your kids and new dads. We'll say new parents, um, you know, deal with your kids. And then if they go off to school at 8 AM, well, great. Then you meditate before you go to work. Um, and then ideally, um, at some point, at any point before dinner, like, so mid afternoon, like where you want to have that coffee or that nap or that chocolate, like that's where you really want to do your second meditation. And because you're giving your body that deep rest, a 20 minute meditation is like the equivalent of an hour and a half nap. And so you feel so refreshed and so recharged on the other side that you can really go back and kick ass at work without maybe needing that coffee or that chocolate or making those mistakes or being too tired to play with your kids when you get home. It's like, it gives you that third wind. So that's when I recommend doing it, but I'm a big fan of don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Do I need to be in complete silence, Emily? Not at all. Noise is no barrier to meditation. Your kids are screaming in the next room, fine. You're in a conference room at your office, fine. You're in a Starbucks, fine. You're on the subway in New York City, fine. Um, But that said, that's tough if you don't have any training, which most people don't. So like, because meditation is simple, people think it's easy, 
but we don't need to, we should not confuse simplicity for weakness, right? Like there is power in training. And even though this thing is simple, it is a skill. And I'm, yes, I'm a meditation teacher, so I'm biased, but I think that just like any other skill, like it takes training and this is your brain that you're talking about. So like when people are like, I don't have time to learn to meditate. I'm like, what the F are you talking about? This is your brain. It is responsible for every decision you make and every cell that is printed in your body. What else are you doing with your time? And so I think that because people assume that they should already know how to do it, then they just sit down like, okay, brain, stop thinking. Oh man, I sure would like a snack. Oh, I love snacks. Snacks are delicious. (laughs) Like, oh crap. Now I can't meditate because I'm having too many thoughts and I quit. And that's like the beginning and the end of everyone's meditation career because they never took the time to learn how to meditate. But once you have a tool and a technique and some training, you can do this thing in public in a noisy spot, no problem. How long does it take me to get those those tools? Like are we talking weeks, months, years? Days, days. Um, wow, so okay. like I have, I have people can learn with me in two ways. One is in person and that class is two hours a day for four days. And, and at the end of it, it's really like, I'm big on self-sufficiency. Like I, I love seeing people again. And once people graduate, they can come back to Ziva for the rest of their life if they want to. But I'm really big on making people not dependent on me. Like I like to give you the keys to the car and the driving instructions that you can do this thing on your own. And then we also created an online training. Um, it's called Ziva Mind right now, but it's, it's going to change soon. It's going to turn into something called Ziva Online. And that is just a, right now it's an eight day training, but we're going to turn it into 15 days because it's going to be more of like a micro learning format just to give people more of a runway to by the time they finish that 15 days, they really have like a habit and a pattern and, and some, uh, momentum built up. Um, but it's, it's really just a few minutes a day for like a few days. And then you have the practice to take with you. But I think to try and skip that step, it would be like, Hey, you guys, for the next 21 days, let's do a Japanese challenge. And for 20 minutes, twice a day, let's speak Japanese. Now, if you don't know how to speak Japanese, that's a really dumb challenge to sign up for, in my opinion. And yet that's what everybody's doing with meditation. Like, yeah, let's just sit down and sit in a chair and torture ourselves and feel like we're failing. And then let's quit in six days versus if you just took the time to learn, then it's really enjoyable. Can I, I, and I, I'm not trying to be stupid or silly or rude here, but I'm interested to know. <laughs> I can't wait. Uh, That'd be a change. I, I just want to preface this. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. Um, <laughs> I, I hear you talking about meditation and, and, and sort of what it does for us. And look, I, I, the example I'm going to use is my Saturday afternoon drinks with my mates at the local club right? It's a, it's a regular thing every Saturday, whoever of us can make it there, we turn up and we all have a drink and a laugh and a relax. And for me, that is, that's my, in inverted commas, meditation. That's my time away where the whole week gets forgotten about everything else that's going on in my life gets forgotten about. We just chat about shit and have a few laughs for an hour or an hour and a half and come home again. I guess what I'm trying to ask is I know that there's probably some physical differences in what I'm doing, but in terms of my body and just relaxing and and putting all that other stuff out of my mind, am I doing anything even remotely similar to meditation? No, (laughs) 
But that's not to say that like having, like being with your friends and not working and that communal thing, it's so good for you. Like there's new science coming out that's saying that the amount of hours that you spend with your friends, the amount of hours you spend socializing is directly proportionate to your level of health. And and we as humans need something like six hours a day of socializing, um, just being with other humans. And a lot of us aren't doing that anymore because of Wi-Fi and working remotely. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's like stress levels are increasing. So look, this is not, I mean, hang out with your friends, have the drinks at the pub. It's so awesome. It's great. But what you're saying, I think, is that that relaxes me, right? And I hear this all the time. I hear, but Emily, you know, exercise is my meditation. Cooking is my meditation. Facebook is my meditation. And, and what people are saying there is that that thing relaxes me, okay? And so it's all good. Where I get, where I want people to be specific with their language is that if we're going to say the word meditation, I would just like for us to be really specific with it and know that what I would define as meditation is when you're accessing that verifiable fourth state of consciousness, when you're accessing that rest that's five times deeper than sleep, and when the right and left hemispheres of your brain are functioning in unison. Like that's the thing that's going to give you all the scientifically proven benefits of meditation. And that's not to say that hanging out with your friends is not good for you. It is. But it's just like playing golf is not the same thing as playing football. You know, meditation is not the same thing as riding a bike. Um, Both good for you, right? But they're not the same thing. Damn, there goes my excuse. (laughs) So (laughs) let's, let's, I want to get onto the brain and the hemispheres in just a second. Just where we are with, you did a speech for Google and as part of the introduction, you said that meditation is now being categorized as a product productivity tool. And I'm sure all the, all the people with Googliness leaned forward in their chair because that's kind of what we're after. It's a hot topic right now is performance and productivity. And you've talked about meditation being the new caffeine. I guess my question, Emily, is, is the perception of meditation and the real value that meditation can bring as opposed to it being just something you did at the end of a yoga session. But now it's actually a serious tool that can help us perform better, be more productive, come up with better ideas. Is the, is the actual perception now of meditation changing in the market? I hope so. I mean, that's really my mission on the planet is, is to change the perception around it and to let go of these like, you know, hippy dippy granola, patchouli laden stigmas around it. Mm, um, mm. And, and, you know, I mean, I know I'm a small piece of the puzzle, but I, I, I feel like the ripple effect of that and the people, cause I, we tend to work with high performers and influential people. And so even if people don't know it, like, you know, one of my celebrity clients outs themselves as a meditator and then 4 million people are suddenly interested in it. Or one of my CEOs like brings me to their office and then their whole company starts meditating. And so even though it's a small piece of the pie, it really is my life's mission. I mean, I know I said to rid the world of ex-meditators, but part of that is by getting rid of the stigma and getting rid of this idea that you have to somehow change your identity or change your lifestyle or belief system in order to do this thing. And and the reality is that's not true. Now your lifestyle may change and your preferences may change as a result of the practice, but one does not precede the other. And so I do think that that's changing. And my whole, I I just got a book deal um, and my book is called The M Word and it's it's straight up meditation for performance and productivity. And, And my, and I'm sort of outing my secrets here, but I'm, 
I'm a thousand percent okay with putting some candy coating on the medicine as long as people take the medicine. Like, I don't care if people come to me because they want to look hot or they want better orgasms or they want to cure their erectile dysfunction. Like, I don't care why you start meditating because the reality is if you do, you're going to be less of a dick. Like you're just going to be nicer you're, because your dorsomedial prefrontal cortex and your insula, which is your empathy center of the brain, when you practice even meditation, like those things strengthen, that connection strengthens. And so you cannot help but start to feel more empathetic, more identified with people that you formerly perceived as separate. And, and that I think is a very valuable tool that the world needs a lot of right now. How, how is expressing, showing, journaling, gratitude, what effect is it actually having on our brain? So interesting. So this, there's some pretty new neuroscience that's come out that suggests, because I mean, I think we've known for a long time that gratitude is good for the brain. Um, but the cool thing that's, that we're learning now <clears throat> is that even if, let's say you're having a really bad day and you go to yoga class or you go home and your partner's like, hey, like what good happened to you today? Or what are you grateful for today? And you're just having a shit day and you just can't even think of anything to be grateful for. Just asking the question, just you asking the question, what am I grateful for? That's enough to change the chemistry of your brain. And I think that's pretty powerful, right? That just asking the question, it's like you're changing the lens through which you're perceiving reality. And most of us are so good at problem solving. Most of us are so good at watering the weeds and just looking for everything that needs to be solved that we've forgotten to water the flowers. And this is how I like to think about gratitude. It's, it's actively, consciously putting your attention on the thing that you want to grow, because we know this to be true. What you put your attention on grows. And so by practicing gratitude, you're starting to water the flowers instead of watering the weeds. So is this why you do love bombs? <laughs> is that why I do love bombs? Is no, love bombs part would... of your is, – is it, is it a, a stepping stone for you – uh, is it, is it, is it appealing to the, the gratitude part of your brain? Um, you know, I honestly don't know the answer to that. I don't know if, if love and gratitude are waking up the exact same part of the brain. My guess is it's at least a similar part of the brain. Um, but for me, they're, they're two separate practices and both of these, i like these would, I would call like the dessert phase of Ziva meditation. So like at Ziva, like the appetizer is mindfulness. The main course is meditation and the dessert are these manifesting tools. And I would call gratitude and the love bomb. I would put these in the manifesting tools because what you're doing is that you're changing the vibration of your cells. You're changing the frequency of your body to start to resonate at the frequency of the stuff that you want. And I know this is sort of like manifesting 101 or sort of like the secret, but, and, and I get that the secret gets a bad name and a bad rap, but there is, there is truth to the reality that thoughts become things and what you put your attention on grows. Um, and how you use that is up to you. But the love bomb, I think is a way, and for those of you who haven't done it yet, it's basically a, it's almost like meta meditation where, um, where you're sending love to someone that you love and then the room and you just blast it out and out and out. You take your lens all the way out to the universe. And it's a really simple, but beautiful practice. 
And I think that it just makes you sexier. I think that like more people want to sleep with you and more people want to hire you and more people want to be your friend when you are flooding your own brain and body with oxytocin, which is the love chemical. So Robbo's got his yellow legal pad out and he's just written at the top of the page, uh, action plan, underscored, by Mm -hmm. love bombs. Makes you sexy. I was pretty much going to say that both of us could do with some of that action by the sounds of things. <laughs> so I'm having a bad day. Someone's got inside my head. I'm getting to my afternoon. I'm tempted to go for a cup of coffee, but instead I'm going to meditate. But all I can think about is this dick that's giving me a hard time and pointing the finger at me, and that's all I can think about. And as much as I try to get rid of this dick in my mind, I can't. Tell me the stepping stones, Emily, to taking that out of my consciousness to be able to get to a point where I need to go. Okay, really good question. And thing one, no one can give their mind a command to stop thinking. The mind thinks involuntarily, just like the heart beats involuntarily. And it's hard to you don't want to give yourself the responsibility of being your thought custodian or your thought bouncer at your brain party that's happening while you meditate. Because again, what you put your attention on grows. And so if you're in there being like, Hey, Dickie dude, I don't want to think about you anymore. You're inadvertently watering the weeds. And so what we have to do instead is water the flowers. But the thing is, most people don't have a flower. Most people don't have a technique or a mantra or something to come back to. So all they're doing is they're going inside their brain party and they're being bouncers. And they're like, shut up, taxes thought. Shut up, thought about my kid's bad grade. Shut up, thought about traffic. Like we're just, we're pushing against all these thoughts when it, when instead of being the bouncer of the meditation party, you really want to be the host. Um, and, but that is much easier to do when you have a guest of honor, when you have a technique or a tool to use something that you can put your attention on. Um, and so that's why I think a lot of people use the breath, which would be more of a mindfulness active, but that's an easy place to start where you're just like, okay, instead of trying to stop thinking about this dude, instead, I'm going to come back to my breath. I'll come back to the present moment. or I'll come back to a body feeling sensation. And these are really easy ways for people to get started with something simple, you know, before they have a mantra or, or more in-depth training. So, so in this analogy, like your breath would be the guest of honor. The thought that you don't like would be an uninvited guest. And the thought that you do like would be an invited guest. And so the trick here is to know that you are the host, not the bouncer. And you just innocently start watering the flowers. You innocently come back to the thing that you want to put your attention on. Stop trying to move away from the negative. That's an awesome analogy. It's a beautiful frame. Yeah. That's just that's Thank so you. cool. Uh, two quick questions before we let you go. Um, you've spoken about your father before. What what was the biggest influence your dad or the biggest lesson your dad gave you or you took from your dad that's helped you on your journey to today? Hmm. My dad was a very amazing man. He was very intelligent. He was a mechanical genius, could build planes and motorcycles with his hands. And he was very... Um, very fearless and, um, like very charismatic and very funny. And, and I, I think I learned 
I probably learned much more than I ever realized from him. Like he was always talking about physics and science and chemistry and, and mechanical things. Like even as like when I was like a toddler and he was always in the, in the garage, like he taught me how to weld when I was nine and he would take me up in his plane when I was 10 and he would like turn off the airplane. I was like with my girlfriend at 10 years old and he would just turn off the airplane and we would start free falling and I'd be screaming and then he would just turn the plane back on. <laughs> so I think that my dad, you know, he, he didn't make me fearless, but he, like, it takes a lot to, to rile me up. You know, it takes a lot. Like I have to really be in a dramatic situation in order for me to freak out. Um, and I think that that's coming from living with a, with a bit of a hellion, you know? Um, and so those were the, the sort of just life lessons while he was around, but he died when I was 24 and in the, he had liver cancer and he was, by the time he was diagnosed, he only had four weeks left to live. And I was on tour with a show called The Producers at the time. And I, I took a leave from my job and I came home. And I remember like in 48 hours, I sort of became like a makeshift nutritionist. And I, I learned everything I could to, to help feed his body and not feed the cancer. And I learned how, how sugar really is like pouring gasoline on the fire that is cancer. And we get, we brought all these tools from Japan and like just all, like anything we could do, because, you know, when you just get a diagnosis, like all you want to do is fight it. Like you're not, you're nowhere near acceptance, you know, like accepting the fact that your dad is going to die is like the furthest thing from your reality. And so you just want to do everything you can. And so I really just poured that into learning, learning, learning. And by the time I got home from my job, he was basically in a coma. And then 48 hours later, of, you know, like juicing and taking away all the crap food that he was eating and getting him these machines. And like, he was like 48 hours later, he was talking and walking and up and down the stairs. And so, and that lasted for like two weeks. And so, and that time is so precious. Every conversation is so precious. Every hour is so precious when you know that they are your last. And so it was really, it was my first time I'd ever seen with my own eyes, the power of food and the power of using food as medicine. And, and I, I mean, it was very visceral and it was immediate. And, and so that was the first time I really realized just how powerful our bodies are and how powerful the substance that we put in them and on them all day is. And, and that was like my first real wake up call to like, oh, like there's a lot to learn here that we don't understand in the West and, and there's a lot of knowledge to, to be shared. And so I just started learning as much as I could. And I think that's also when I started therapy for the first time, cause I was like working through like not only his death, but then like the death of the, the potential, which is really, I think what you mourn when someone dies is like everything that, that wasn't done. And, um, and then through working with my therapist, like then I got more and more interested in like the more esoteric and metaphysical parts of healing. And then, and I was going to be a therapist. I trained with this man for seven years and then, and then I found meditation. And so it just became like stepping stones of like, I would learn one modality and then another modality and then another one. And so far meditation has been the fastest, most powerful thing I've been able to find to create change. And I always say that if I find something else, I'll, I'll do something else. But, but I don't know if I answered your question, but I think big picture, like walking with him on that journey and that transition into death, uh, was the thing that really woke me up and, and woke me up to a, the, the fact of that this knowledge is out there and b my ability to be a conduit for the change. And so that was, um, you know, a beautiful gift. That's a beautiful story. I mean, to answer the question, absolutely. It was just a beautiful way for us to finish up. I have one quick, quick question. It's just more out of curiosity. 
One of our favourite sons of the Mojo Radio Show is Tate Fletcher, who was our first show to open Rocktober last year. And one of the messages Robbo and I took from the show was to be of service. And he said the greatest thing mm. you can do is to always ask yourself the question of how can I be of service? And I noticed that Ziva give police officers a full scholarship. And to me, I feel quite close to the service industry and being of service because I'm in our local fire brigade. Mm. And I'm just curious to see what the intention is to be of service to these guys, why and how Ziva can benefit a police officer or, in fact, somebody in the service industry, like, being, you know, the services. Yes, we actually offer full scholarship to cops, fire uh, fire. Men, fire, what are you called now? It can't be firemen anymore, right? What are you, fire? Fire person. Fire person. <laughs> Firefighter, there you go. Firefighters. Um, yeah, so like police officers, firefighters, and veterans, and kids as well. So, um, you know, our courses are, they're an investment. You know, people, like it's its on purpose. Like my courses aren't, I wouldn't say that people consider them cheap. And that's, that's on purpose. Like I want people to want to be in the room. And I want people to value the teaching and the, and the practice. And I want people to commit to it. Um, so that's, that's its own thing. But I think that a, a small way that we can give back is by, you know, offering scholarships to people that traditionally don't make a lot of money, who've spent their lives being of service and specifically with veterans and with police officers, like they're just, their line of work is so traumatic, like by definition, and there's so much stress in their body that I feel like it can do so much good. And I think especially in America with the, with the police brutality and, and with like the light being shined on the, the level of like the suicide rates and then like the, the, just the racial divide. And I just felt like it can do nothing but, but good to give these people tools to get rid of this lifetime of accumulated stresses. Cause they're just accumulating it so much faster than most of us. Um, and then the kids are sort of the opposite side of the spectrum, you know, like obviously like kids actually their course fee is that they bring a drawing of what meditation means to them. And it's really adorable. Um, but this one kid came last last time we did it and he was like, well, I can't draw a drawing of it because I don't have an experience of it yet. So I was like, good point. Send me a picture later after you have a visceral experience. Um, but, you know, I think with kids, there's that Dalai Lama quote that is if we taught every eight-year-old to meditate, we would end war within a generation. And so, you know, and I feel like if, you, if even if you don't believe him, like, let's do the experiment and find out. Let's find out what the ripple effect of that would be. <laughs> well. Emily, you're a force of nature. This has been just the most enjoyable conversation. We so appreciate your time. Um, and I think something you said at the start of the show, you said um, it's about union attained. And I think we have union attained with the Mojo Radio Show with Emily and Ziva. So <laughs> absolutely, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you guys for having it, me, really. You guys a are a delight. real blast. And I want to come visit you. We should. Yeah. We've, we're, we're starting to make a habit of having coffee with our guests. So um, so next time you're in Sydney, um, you know, look us up. Have you been out Done here? and done. I came last summer to, I went to the Blue Mountains and to Sydney, but I've, I've never, I didn't make it to Melbourne and I've never been to New Zealand. So I feel like I need, I need like another trip. You don't want to go so. to either of those. Seriously. <laughs> Waste well, of time. I live, I live just on the other side of the Blue Mountains. So if you come to the Blue Mountains, it's a quick, it's a quick jump for me on my horse to get to you. So um, <laughs> you got to come back. <laughs> it's a shake of a right? lamb's tail. Just yeah. two shakes of a lamb's tail. Two shakes yeah. of a lamb's tail. There you go. Emily, what's your best address? Oh, yes. I'm sending you a packet of Tim Tams. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Sounds like there's ice cream in them, though. But, no, 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 there's no ice cream in them, but 
but I want to know. I need a response from you. I need you to email me back or, or send me a message on Skype what your thoughts are. Done and done. All right, beautiful. Emily, where would you send people? I know you said you're changing the name of the business. Where's the best place for us to send people to see more about you and to get on this program? Yeah, so I would say Ziva, Z-I-V-A, meditation.com. And people can access both the live and the online training through zivameditation.com. And then we're also all over social media, just at Ziva Meditation. Yeah, and there's some brilliant stuff that I have found that I think will be totally valuable to add to it. Yeah, you guys really did your homework. You guys watched all the videos. (laughs) (laughs) He's got no life. I appreciate it. (laughs) You're easy to watch. Thank you, Emily. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. We don't take ourselves too seriously. I wish I knew how to quit you. The Mojo Radio Show. There is one bit of a problem with that interview. Why? Well, as promised, I did send Emily a packet of Tim Tams. That was probably about three weeks ago and I've heard nothing. Did you actually send some? I did send some. So <laughs> I'm hoping I haven't caused like a sugar overload and she's in hospital somewhere on a, on a drip or something, you know. Well, I've been watching a few videos with Emily recently. She's talking awfully quickly. Yes, right. Bit of a sugar rush, I reckon. <laughs> Tim Tams uh, plus meditation dear. equals... Problemo. Intravenous Tim Tams while mm. meditating. How would that be? Ooh. I'm going to say I love talking to Emily. I felt like we were mates. She was just uh, the most wonderful, spirited, amazing mm. backstory. And the people she's working with now and the stuff you'll find online, folks, she really is a superstar. And I highly encourage anybody to seek out her materials on YouTube and online. Check out Ziva. There's some really good work she's doing with Ziva Mind. The people she's partnering with, um, it's it's great. It's just uh, we're such a privilege to have her on the show. Mm, absolutely, the Mojo Radio Show. So you know, you know how we're always bouncing stuff around, ideas for the show. There was a mm-hmm. bit of video you sent me uh, a couple of days ago. It was um, a motivational piece, and it was like well, it was 15, 16 minutes long. Do you remember the one? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been playing that to a few people, and I reckon the first minute and a half of that. Skip the music this week. We should use it as our player. We're out. There's a popular quote going around at the moment. The person you will be in five years is based on the books you read and the people you hang around with today. This is quite true, but it applies to everything else as well. The person you will be in the future is based on everything you do today. The people you hang around with, but more so the people you listen to, the opinions you believe, the books you read or the videos you watch. All the information you take in, positive or negative, will affect your future. The workouts you do or don't do, that will show up in the future. The foods you eat today will affect your future on a visual and energy level. The same is true with your thoughts and information. What you feed your mind will shape your future. If all you do is take in garbage, guess what your future is going to be made up of? Commit to feed your mind with successful thoughts and surround yourself with those who have the same ambition. It doesn't matter where you get your information from. You may read. You may get it from podcasts or videos. It doesn't matter. Just make sure you keep feeding your mind every day. The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com.
For more about Gary, see GaryBurtWhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out VoodooSound.com.au and for the right voice, RealTimeCasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.